So hello, I'm Alex Rockeen, I'm a barrister at Brooklyn and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law and I'm incredibly uh, grateful and pleased today to be joined by Julian Sheeter. Um, I always want to do introductions uh, by the people themselves as opposed to me wittering on uh, trying to introduce them ineptly myself. So over to you Julian, can you give us a, who are you as it were, and give us a bit of background to, to, to what, what, what you do? Okay, my name is Julian Sheever and I'm my principal role is a specialist advisor to the British Medical Association in medical ethics and human rights. Um, I also have what the Americans call a bit of a side gig, I think, or a side um, hustle, which is I'm a consultant to a number of humanitarian organizations. And today we're talking about the, the kind of interaction of law and, and medical ethics and it's always been very interesting to me from that perspective to look at the way law and ethics impact domestically in the UK and the kind of humanitarian sector where things are very, very different. But today we're focusing on, on kind of domestic medical ethics and law. Um, and so my principal role here as, is as an advisor in medical ethics, effectively through all the complicated ways in which the, the British Medical Association organises itself an advisor to the medical profession in medical ethics. And can you just give us, we'll come right at the end to talk about coronavirus, but I'm really keen yeah. that kind of we don't talk about it, yeah. the whole of this. But could you just give people a sense of prior to coronavirus, what sort of things might be crossing your desk on a, you know, on a weekly basis? Yeah, I mean, an extraordinarily wide range. I mean, the, the department is organised such that different people have different specialties, different, different areas of expertise. Um, part of the reason that Alex and I got to know each other is that one of my areas of expertise is, is, is mental capacity. So I would, I would very, very often receive requests from doctors for advice relating to the care and treatment of adults who who, who may, you ordinarily it's in the grey zone where there are mm -hmm. uncertainties about where an individual patient may have, either may have capacity or there are doubts about best interests. So that's one area in which I'm, I've been heavily involved. We also get a range of issues, for example, child protection. I mean, one of the interesting things about consent and the law and ethics around consent is we look at both those who are growing into the ability to consent to treatment and we also look at those who are who have either catastrophically lost their ability to consent or whose abilities you know whose cognitive capacities are declining so we we get both both those ends we've been heavily involved uh, a colleague of mine in particular uh, Ruth Campbell have been heavily involved in in issues around physician assisted dying effectively I mean this this enormous um, uh, uh, national debate I mean global debate in many ways about the extent to which people should have the liberty to make decisions about the point at which they bring their own lives to a close. We've been heavily involved in that and I've also got an interest, I, I mean I'm I kind of the sort of BMA's lead on, on, on human rights issues. So for example I've been involved in issues around the suppression of medical opinion globally where doctors are criticizing regimes and instead of just, you know, being pilloried in the press, they are subject to brutal repression. You know, there are tales, uh, unfounded, I mean, you know, unsubstantiated tales of doctors falling out of buildings in certain parts of the world because they have been criticising the regime. So that's another dimension, dimension to it. Gosh, there's so much in there. I think we'll, we'll have to leave the last bit. Yes, sadly. Uh, and, and as much, <laughs> as much, no, I mean, it's the incredibly important things, but just, just to focus on, 
actually, well, I, I, I'd be really interested just to dig into with you, if I might, a little bit around consent and the idea of growing into consent. Yeah. Because it's an area where the law, having been involved in some of the, one of the big cases about it in the Supreme Court recently, really did, and having been thinking a lot about it, it's an area where the law, I think, really struggles, actually, um, because we've got, I'm talking about older adolescents, yep. you're kind of yeah, yeah. 16, yeah. 17 year old. Yeah. So you've got the law saying one thing, then you've got neuroscience telling us, um, well, actually, you know, people's brains, especially male brains, don't actually finish cooking until yeah. well after the age of majority. Uh, and then you've got some fascinating kind of ethical pushes and pulls backwards and forwards. I mean, sort of children's autonomy versus parental rights. Yeah. I'd just be really interested in your take on, on well, your views on that issue. I mean, I appreciate you're not speaking for the BMA, but just sort of where you, where, yeah, I what mean, crosses your mind in that area? I mean, it, it also being a parent as well, and being a parent of children of this kind of age, you 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 have this issue, and and it's not just an issue around children concern. I think it's, there's a kind of binary switch in some of this: do they or don't they? Yeah. And 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 that's the legal you know answer: do they or do they not possess the the capacity? or status if it's an age-based thing it's a state you know do they have this status yes or no do they have this capacity yes or no now of course that's where so many of the challenges start to arise because you know if you think about, if i think about my relationship to my sons and and their decision making the idea that you would reduce this to a binary status is is frankly practically quite absurd and yet the law has to come up with an answer where where rights effectively are in conflict. So where mm. you have, for example, the growing decision-making abilities of children, at what point does that harden into a rights claim against parents who clearly have rights, and but whose rights are focused on, whose rights are kind of not just constrained by, but animated by their concept of the best interests of their children so that as a paradigm that's an imperfect paradigm for for the law but from a medical perspective that kind of makes some sense because you have got this kind of welfare aspect to it which is you know you are charged as a doctor for example you are charged with the welfare in some respects of a young person and when someone comes along and simply says well they now you know, we have made a decision based upon X, Y criteria, that this person has the capacity to make decisions that even may be extremely damaging to them. You can see why doctors get extremely uneasy because you know, the, the, the desire to recognize you know, the kind of informed decisions of children is strong, but also this welfare, pushing back welfare concept of, well, you know, uh, their life could go so differently if they were, you know, if, if they if they conceived of their interests slightly differently, so it's a really or a difficult position of tension. It is. Can I just sort of tease you for a second, yes. though, or tweet this? Why does that run out age eighteen? Yes. I and mean, why is that not exactly the same for an eighteen-year-old, where we've got if you've got MCA capacity and you're not under duress or coercion? The doctor must respect the decision made, you know, for any reason, no reason, a bad reason. I mean, it, it's an area, because in a, in a sense, because one of the things that the, the law seems to, the law suggests is 
you know, at a certain point, you acquire a liberty right. Mm -hmm. You acquire this right. And as you say, 18 is a status right. I have reached this age. Let's say, let's set to one side concepts of capacity, but I have achieved a certain kind of status and therefore I have acquired a liberty right. Now, we know, everybody knows that there are people who do terrible things with those liberty rights, that they do self-destructive things with those liberty rights. They do things that damage others um, in, in profound and appalling ways, even sometimes, you know, even within the purview, you know, even within the constraints of the law, they do terrible things. We know that, we recognise that. But there is a point, I guess, at which you say, which you're forced almost to say, the consequences of interfering, of, of, of restricting ordinary self-governing liberty rights, the consequences of doing that based upon some concept of paternalism or what is prudential or that which is likely to lead to overall best outcomes, the consequences of that in terms of invasiveness and personal liberty are so profound that that it's almost a cost-benefit analysis you think it would simply be too burdensome it would be too intrusive it would destabilize the relationship between individuals and the state so profoundly if you did not at that point grant ordinary adult liberties but if we take freedom and liberty seriously we have to accept there's going to be a cost for that and some of that cost the coin of some of that is human suffering you know even that brought about by individuals themselves Yes, I mean, I'm always really struck by Sir Mark Headley, the, the former uh, Court of Protection judge, I mean, a wonderful, wonderful Court of Protection judge, partly because he is the parent of an uh, adult child with learning disabilities. Right. So he really, as it were, gets incapacity yeah. from, from and yeah. trying to support decision making. He, I remember being on panels with him where, where he was relaying to doctors that, that the consequence of the conclusion the person's got capacity is that morally and legally, the decision's on the other person on the patient and otherwise yeah. it's on you and I always felt that was you could sort of see sometimes in doctor's eyes a kind of right actually I get that as it yeah. were you know it's yeah. not my call yeah my, I've done my job I've tried to support I've tried to do yeah but it's not my fault at one level uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean but but it's that extraordinary thing, isn't it, that, 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 that leaves you feeling, feeling almost aghast at sometimes. And, and you hear this, don't you, from the parents of, 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 of children with learning disabilities. Once they become 18, they move into a different... And it's so just this kind of, you know, this, this, this movement of the calendar shifts this person from one position in terms of services, for example, in terms of services they're likely yeah. to receive, into another. And you think that, well, that, you know, without any kind of narrative change in the lives of the individuals, this simple, simple shift in calendar, a whole, you know, you move out into a different, and with that notion, yes, that suddenly, yes, the person has, I mean, I think every parent must look at that and think, this is the moment now at which they have acquired those, those, those adult liberties and, and you keep your fingers crossed and you hope for the best. And, and, but yes, you don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a truism, it's trite, but there isn't a sudden internal change in, you know, in, in, in self-understanding that goes along with the shift in status, you know. But I suppose to sort of dig into that a bit more from, from the ethical perspective, because I mean, the law is so, the NCA is so firmly predicated on some very, as it were, facially simple legal terms. Yeah. You know, can you understand? Can you retain? Can you yep. use in way? And if you can't, yep. is it because there's something wrong with your mind or brain? Yeah. You know, these are just plain language English terms at one level. Yeah. 
But I think what I'm getting from this and what, what, what you're relaying is that carries with it a whole amount of kind of ethical freighting. It does. Which, I mean, the lawyers, you know, we sort of do our best, but we don't necessarily understand. And I'd be really interested in your take on what the kind of ethical perspective, how that fills out or supports that, that plain legal language. Because, I mean, that's kind of, in a sense, what you're telling me you do on a day-to-day basis where you've got doctors ringing you up because they're in the grey zone yeah. on capacity or best interest. I yeah. suspect they're not asking you for legal advice on what does the word understand mean. No, they're not. I mean, what are they? They're, they're after something. Yes, I mean, I, the, 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 because, because one of the problems as well, of course, is that is that capacity can be compromised or it can be put under pressure in so many different ways. Um, and the classic examples, you know, I know you'll be familiar with these, Alex, are where you have an adult who, for whom you can't identify an obvious disorder or dysfunction of the mind or brain, but is clearly making decisions that are under, under duress. Whether that's external duress from a partner or, you know, a family member, or whether that's a state of internal duress as a result of addiction or... There are clearly areas where, where, where people's ability to make, to make decisions are, are so compromised that morally, ethically, the desire to intervene, the desire to take a more paternalistic approach can be extremely strong. Um, and because the law is very clear, and, and I'm not saying, I should say, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get at the ethical unease around yeah, it. No, that's, what I want, make, that's why I wanted to talk yeah, to you. As it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than making suggestions about the changing in the law, because I'm a big fan of the Mental Capacity Act as it stands, and I'm a big fan of its utility. Um, but it does leave you with profound concerns about those whose ability, despite the absence of some kind of organic disorder, if you like, if that's the right phrase, whose ability to manage their own lives is compromised, as I say, I mean, addiction's a classic example. Somebody with a coercive partner is another classic example, where you are seeing people who, who, for whom to hand over to them the full, as it were, content of autonomy is almost to be cruel because they're simply not situated. They're not well, they're not well situated to exercise it. And I think when I hear that, when people want to talk to me, when doctors want to talk to me, around these situations. It's that that they want to, to tease out, that they feel that they, they are unable to exercise a duty of care. They are unable to put in place the kinds of structures of support that they feel would be beneficial because they are constrained from doing so. You know, they're, they're, in, a, in a sense, the law says, well, they have liberty. It is rightfully their decision. Yeah, I mean, I think one, one of the things which, I mean, I, I would likewise say I'm a fan of the MCA, but I think one of the things I, I find challenging about it is, is I've, I tend to say to people, it's got a 5% law and 95% ethics, because it tells you you can do this, but the really yeah. fundamental question is, should you do this? Yes. Precisely. And I think one of the things you're, to me, you're getting at is sometimes there's this dis- distinction possibly between quite a kind of thin version of autonomy you know, which is the right to say yes or no. Yeah. And that rather thicker version that, yeah. well, I know if I did X, Y, and Z, I am fairly sure I can bring you to a position where you can really make a decision. 
Yeah. And, and that's, that's the Mumby stuff, isn't it? Yeah. If I remember it. And it's also this idea that, you know, the Essex autonomy people get at, which is this idea of distributed autonomy or this idea, you know, if you, that, that's one of the issues, isn't it? We've seen this quite a lot of the, the MCA, because I suppose of its, of its, of its rooting in, in concepts of personal liberty and liberty rights, does tend to see the individual as a kind of classic monad. You know, the yeah. individual is, it is I who make these decisions, the, you know, the supreme and sovereign I that makes these decisions. Now, often, of course, the MCA is used in circumstances where, you know, it's not used when people are in, you know, in the full, you know, kind of glory of their of their mental and physical powers, often comes in at times of stress, of difficulty and uncertainty. Precisely those moments when that concept of autonomy, the, the sovereign self, is imperiled. So you're often left with this situation where it is as if the governing concept, the governing legal concept of of a of a monad with a with a decision made with, with you know with a liberty right if you like is is deeply imperiled and 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 you know family that those close to individuals those trying to support individuals health professionals looking in saying yes this doesn't quite fit you know this idea this concept of 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 the decision making self doesn't fit this enormously complex decision-making context sorry can you hear that is this okay. no, gone. Yeah. excuse me i'm gonna have to i don't know pardon don't worry we had a small technical glitch i also noticed my son was run past I did, I did. Yeah, in all go but we're almost out of time actually julian which is okay. a shame because there's so many things i'd like to ask you um i'm very glad in a way we haven't talked about coronavirus because actually one of the reasons I want to have these conversations is to be thinking about kind of deep things which are going to outlive coronavirus. I want, do you have any suggestions for people who want to think more about the ethical side, you know, reading or anything like that, which comes to mind? If not, we can have a chat offline afterwards you know, and I can put I mean, something there up. Is, I know one of the most influential books in my ethics reading, um, which touches on some of these issues, is Life's Dominion, Dawkins' Life's Dominion. Yeah. I couldn't recommend that enough. I mean, to me, it is a masterpiece of of liberal thinking, both legally and ethically. And it 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 seeks to it seeks to understand the fundamental differences of approach to concepts of of um, the governing self, if you like. What is it that makes it more? You know, what is it that makes gives a person value such that, for example, in the context that we're talking about, they have the, the ability to make their own decisions, say, for example, in an end-of-life context. And I could not recommend that enough. I, I think it's a superb piece of writing. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, actually, I think one of the really good things about it is it may well make you vehemently disagree with what he's saying. I mean, there's certainly bits I massively disagree with what yeah. he's saying, but it's brilliant because it's so clearly written. Yeah. It then enables you to frame your disagreement yeah. in an equally Absolutely. clear way to think, as it Absolutely. were, to think back against it. But Julian, I am so grateful for your time. Thank you very much indeed. That's a pleasure. Um, I'm going Good to, to talk to you, Alex. Likewise, I'm going to press stop now.